Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Lessons from Lab and Life podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that this episode offers you some new perspective. Today, we'll be sharing some of the panel discussion from a recent Go Green event that we co-hosted with Lab Conscious. The event was held at the Lab Central facility in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it focused on bringing together experts in the field of green practices within a laboratory setting so that they could share their experiences and resources with a broad scientific community. Our panel discussion focused on cost-effective and eco-friendly tips for dealing with life science lab waste. Our panel members were Skylar Stewart of Triumvirate Environmental, which focuses on environmental health and safety, as well as sustainable business and operations management. Ali Safavi, President and CEO of Grenova, and the inventor of the Tip Novus machine, which is a piece of benchtop equipment that washes and sterilizes pipette tips for reuse rather than recycling. Allison Paradise, founder of My Green Labs, a company devoted to promoting sustainability in science practice. Suzanne Wood, sustainability and energy manager of UMass Medical School. And Quinton Gilly, senior sustainability officer at Harvard University. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Quinton, could you tell us how Harvard has become a leader in the green lab space? Thank you. So, yeah, Harvard, um, we, I like to think that we're a leader in green labs. Um, we have one of the, the oldest green labs program going back maybe 10 to 15 years now. Um, it really started with fume hoods, um, shedding fume hood sashes. And, and it, it wasn't an idea that came necessarily from the students, but from facilities um, over in our chemistry department. They said, wow, is there anything you can do to sort of drive these students and, and, and faculty members to, you know, shut their fume hood sashes because we can save a lot of energy. So we figured out how much energy we could save, and it was, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars if we could just get fume hoods shut. So we started a competition um, called the Shut the Sash Competition, still running today, and that's sort of the backbone of our program. Um, and with that, we basically use our time um, outside of energy projects, we work on waste reduction, reuse, donations, and things like that. Um, we have about 2 to 2.5 uh, full-time employees uh, working on Green Labs at the moment. So, yeah. I'm Suzanne Wood. I'm the Sustainability and Energy Manager for UMass Medical School. I oversee the recycling programs for both the medical school and the clinical system of our affiliated hospital on-site. Um, as well as run energy projects. Um, Specifically, a lot of them are in the labs as well, looking at how to reduce energy consumption in the laboratory. Um, I'm jealous of Quinton's program. Um, I am an FTE of one for both sustainability and energy programs. Um, But we are an EPA award winner for the Partner of the Year um, for recycling um, for the institution, and a lot of that waste does come from the laboratories. Suzanne, can you tell us a little bit about um, what kind of feedback you've had um, about the WasteWise program that you're running there? Sure. So we've been a partner of WasteWise since 2014. It's really an institutional program rather than specifically just for the laboratories. Um, But laboratory waste is a huge component of our waste stream. Uh, We've been successful in the WasteWise program, which primarily helps provide resources for waste reduction, tracking mechanisms, um, benchmarking um, with comparable peers, Um, 
and we've been successful a lot because of our waste and recycling programs um, that we participate in with the laboratories. Um, a lot of our lab waste recycling programs is simply just an extension of our single stream recycling program that we have throughout the rest of our campus. We've just expanded the items that are collected to the laboratories. And we've done this with very specific signage to make sure that laboratories are aware of what the acceptable items are in terms of what plastics, rigid plastics, pipette tip boxes. If we're accepting chemical bottles, what types of chemical bottles those may be um, that are acceptable for our waste. And it was a big partnership to get that program up and running with a collaboration between EH&S as well as our waste hauler to do that in a way that everybody was comfortable with what was leaving the facility as recycling. Um, we've also worked really hard with reuse programs on campus. Um, so we have what's called a swap shop. And so this is a surplus with a purpose. It's essentially a vacant laboratory that I squat in and get moved every year or so, um, where anybody on campus um, who has items in good condition that are still operable, that they no longer need for whatever reason, can bring to this room. Um, and then another lab that's either moving in or needs a new hot water bath because theirs failed can just come in take it, we ask they sign out so that we have some type of tracking mechanism to see how much we exchange. Um, but that's probably the lab's favorite program. Um, you know, we have exchanged in the three years that it's been open, almost 4,000 pounds of material, valued at roughly $80,000. So there's been a huge cost savings through that program. Um, and again, and all of these metrics are then reported through WasteWise. Um, and gives us a sense of year over year of kind of how our program is improving and kind of what categories from you know, donation, reuse, recycling, um, and just general um, practices. Again, from the institution level, but a lot of it does come back down to what the labs are doing and how the labs are operating and how they impact our waste stream. Great. Quentin, can you talk a little bit about the feedback you've received from Harvard's um, green program? Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, you know, I think we've done a good job over the years um, really getting the word out that we exist. Um, you know, Harvard is very decentralized. It's almost like each school is almost like a separate university at some time. So um, we have a medical school campus. We have our um, graduate school campus um, in Cambridge. Um, we also have the Roland Institute um, just down the street here. Um, it's a lot of territory to cover, but um, focusing on, you know, getting the word out that we exist, that we can be a resource, um, as far, not only for, you know, trying to implement waste programs, but also improving our building um, efficiency, efficiency programs. Um, as far as the, the waste side, um, we've, we've, all, we've worked with Triumvirate. We've had a lot of, a lot of great progress with them and also our other haulers. Um, historically, probably over the past five to 10 years, we've uh, developed a lab recycling certification program. So the idea is we work with EH&S and we do a walk through the lab and look at the opportunities to uh, recycle and reduce waste. And each lab has a designated recycling coordinator and, and sort of, it, it was a really great program that, that people were taking on. Um, unfortunately, this past year, due to the problems that Allison mentioned with the commodities markets with recycling and things going to, to China, we've had to drastically reduce our recycling efforts. So right now in the labs, when it comes to recycling, we're really only recycling cardboard and paper. Mm. So a lot of feedback from the labs asking us, how are we gonna figure out you know, this situation and, and improve the recycling programs? There's a lot of programs out there, um, take back programs that, that was mentioned earlier that 
I think are really effective. And, and also there's some out there that I actually question, um, you know, comparing the, their process for recycling or upcycling compared to um, if, our, if it was actually put into our waste uh, stream and sent to incineration because we actually have um, waste to energy mm-hmm. incineration program. Um, so comparing that to some of these take-back programs that are can be expensive, not all of them, um, but also what's the life cycle look like um, when it comes to things like gloves and things like that. So right now, when it comes to waste, we're sort of in a tough spot. Mm-hmm. Um, on the energy side, we're, we're in, a, in a pretty good position. I think we're leading in a, in a couple areas that um, we're hopefully going to be talking more about in the next couple of years. So recently, China has put in place a ban on the import of recyclable plastics. Allison, could you tell us how this has impacted lab waste recycling? We work with organizations across North America, so we get to see how it's impacting basically all across the country. And I would say in California, we have a pretty decent infrastructure to still accept number one and number two. But anything beyond that is really not able to be recycled. Um, and that's because China was taking all of that plastic, the harder plastics, the number fives. We're still collecting it and putting it in a warehouse, and the hope is that we'll be able to, there'll be some sort of industry that will come about that we can make use of all of that, but I'm not terribly hopeful for that. And I think it's similar across the country. That number one and number two, I'm hoping you're still able to collect that here. No? Oh my. Even, okay, well, I'm so sorry. <laughs> other places, yeah, I think other places, at least I know in Connecticut, they're still taking one and two. Um, there are other places that are still able, you're able to take one and two. One and two is at least we've built some infrastructure for in the states. It's the ones that are beyond that, the, the hard plastics, the fives, the film plastics. We've never really had much for styrofoam, so we can forget about number six. But that's it's had a really big impact and it's helped us rethink and I think some of the manufacturers rethink their designs and whether they can go back to using something like a number one and two rather than moving towards these different amalgamated plastics but I'm going to give it to Skylar because I really feel like (laughs) you would have a much better perspective than I would on this I only see it from the back end you see it from the front end yeah thank you um, yeah, so our, like I said, our facility in Jeanette, Pennsylvania does accept plastics directly into plant two that haven't been contaminated um, with biologics. Uh, we can accept a variety of different plastics, including some of the high density stuff that's out there. Um, so that some of those plastics can be really good inputs for um, the, the plastics that we're trying to make. And we blend it with a lot of other material as well, so we have a lot of flexibility on what we can and can't take. Um, but like I said, <clears throat> we usually do it on a case-by-case basis. Every client that we take on, we do a full assessment of whatever waste that uh, they're producing or whatever plastics they want to be recycling, um, and we can help tailor a solution that, that, that's good for you. And we have seen that with the ban that's happened, we have had folks come to us and be like, hey, we have a lot of this plastic that we've got to get rid of and we don't, we want to recycle it, we don't want to go to landfill, can you help us? And in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases we have been able to help them. So, May I ask you a question? So what is yeah. your capacity? So if we were to say all of us now want to send our plastics to, do you have capacity to take that on? Yeah, so really I think the the we have a couple different processing units in each facility, and I think where the majority of our limiting factors come in is with, on the RMW side of it, um, where 
it's still very much a boutique boutique service because it is one plant, one facility. Um, but the process of decontaminating that regulated medical waste is definitely energy. Like it's in, it's intensive. It takes a lot of resources and people and just a lot of manual labor to be able to do that. Uh, on the plastic side of it, it's a little bit more straightforward because you're reducing that whole decontamination process. Um, so you're, it's just like plugging it in and kind of feeding the beast. So um, there's definitely a lot more flexibility on that side of things. So we've worked really closely with our waste hauler on this, and a lot of the China ban has to do with the level of contamination, not as much what commodities that they're accepting. So one thing that everybody in the lab can do is that kind of obey if you have single stream recycling in your facility, obey those guidelines because that's where it becomes really challenging and that's really what shut down a lot of the market in China was the fact that we were giving them really contaminated streams and that they essentially said we don't, we don't want your trash anymore, right? Um, so the level of contamination and the ability for your kind of material recovery facilities that your waste hauler uses to sort out that contamination is in many ways the driver of what's going to be accepted. Um, so kind of two comments on that, you know, obey the single stream guidelines. You know, the state of Massachusetts is working to collaborate a little bit more um, between haulers so that they develop a consistent list of kind of what's okay. Um, but it also depends on how your waste is sorted. So, you know, our vendor doesn't use for commercial recycling, doesn't use as automated of a process, so they can actually reduce contamination a little bit more with a manual process, so we're allowed to kind of provide additional items. We haven't seen a ban on pipette tip boxes, some of the other rigid plastics that other facilities have had. So, you know, encourage your facilities group, you know, to reach out to their waste haulers to get a good sense of what the acceptable items are, um, because you may not, your facility, depending on your waste hauler and their ability to process the waste and really drive down contamination at their facility, may be what drives them to what they consider to be acceptable in their waste streams. That's actually a really good point, and that's come up with us a few times um, where we've had folks that um, they, ha they have stuff that won't necessarily be taken because of potential, because of actual contamination or even potential contamination where they just won't even go near it, and then that's where it's actually come to us, and then we've verified whether it can go straight into plant two, or in some cases it does need to go through plant one or like maybe an abbreviated version of that. And even not like chemical contamination or biological contamination, you know, the biggest one is plastic bags, so loose, you know, plastics. Those can't be recycled in traditional single-stream recycling. Any tubing, things like that, um, that really tangle their machines. Um, materials that are mixed together, so if you have, you know, a cardboard and a paper, you know, packaging, if you don't separate those two completely, that leads to contamination. Um, so, you know, beyond just thinking about is this contain chemical waste? Does this contain biological waste? You know, is it, you know, hazardous in any way? Think about how, you know, these processes, these materials have to be sorted. Um, and there's some really cool videos online. If you kind of Google um, Eel Harvey, who's our waste vendor, you, they have a video that shows their single stream processing facility. And it gives a really good sense of how these materials are actually sorted um, and can lend some kind of insight into kind of how the separation needs to happen in order for single stream recycling to continue to be successful. What are other challenges that are facing recycling efforts today? So one other point that we've been working on um, with recycling, and if you haven't heard about it, it's coming down the stream. Um, starting in January, uh, there is going to be no plastic bags allowed, period, in any recycling in the state. 
Um, it's part of the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection new regulations. So we've been working primarily on trying to figure out how are we going to be able to collect the any plastics from not, not labs, but from all our buildings and other items for recycling. Um, so that's going to be a challenge for, for everybody, I think. So this is where, you know, WasteWise can be really helpful. They had a forum, I want to say, month ago or so um, at the Eel Harvey facility, which is one of um, the hauler that we use. Um, but they had all different types of companies, um, including Whole Foods and a lot of them that have the loose packaging for um, collection. Um, so it's a really good, again, WasteWise can be a really good resource if you have those kind of weird off items or need some kind of assistance as to where to bring them. Um, again, they can't be part of single stream, but they are recyclable and they'll get made in, you know, grocery stores, for instance, most of them have bag drop-off areas. Um, so something similar. It would, it would be processed and made into a plastic bag or something of the same... I don't know if it's in this country, if it's out of the country, you know, that I don't know, the, you know, I mean, I guess it comes down to where do any of our recyclables go and what do they end up being made into. Um, but there are resources available in places that you can recycle those materials. They just do have to be collected separately. So um, just just sitting back and like listening to everyone's discussion, this is actually a, the way I see this, like in you know, China, not taking the recyclings from, uh, from labs or the lab waste. It's actually like this one of the best things probably has happened because before we were just like you know under um, kind of easy route of like okay they, they they taking it it's their problem oh they're recycling it but who knew like actually what they were doing right or what percentage of it was was being recycled so what's 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 interesting is like because of this problem now there is awareness and we are talking like you know for solutions and uh, this is going to make a difference this is like this this action from China is literally is gonna help us to be way far ahead three to four years from now and have a solution within our own country uh, and stuff like, you know, trying to rely on, on, uh, on, on outside the co um, country, like, you know, resources or so. Recycling isn't the end-all, be-all for lab waste. So what are some tips you could offer for reducing consumption or reusing resources within a lab setting? Use the tip, use My, the tip, Novus. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, the, the main thing is, like, you know, I think the... What I would like to point out is like the first step is being open to new ways to uh, evaluate, validate new approaches. Don't be stuck with like, you know, with the traditional approaches like, oh, my assay is so sensitive, there's no way I can take a chance for any contamination. Yes, that's fully understandable. But what if, what if when you clean something within your own facility, you're not going to have that carryover problem if you do it right, if you use the right equipment. So... Um, I think the only tip I can give you is like, or to any of the scientists, like be open. Be open to new technologies, give it a try, and work with them to improve it. it that's the only way we're gonna have a fully sustainable model that it's gonna be complete like in a circle, rather than like, you know, still like getting it, ha handing it over to somebody else, like, you know, dealing with the, with, with, uh, with the waste and hopefully they're turning to something. I mean, it just, just within your own environment, you'll be able to provide a sustainable solution that it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's working and it's proven. So, um, anybody? I was just going to say, so one of the things that we like to do is uh, equipment recovery and consumables recovery. So if a lab has bought a whole bunch of something and they realize that their research changed and they don't need it anymore, then we will try to match that with a new home. 
So we host events called Free Cycles, well, where we sort of collect all these donations from around campus. It could be equipment, it could be uh, consumables, and we'll bring those to one location, and it'll be a lab free cycle. So everything, or virtually everything, will be um, focused around labs. <clears throat> and I just wanted to say, so recycling is, is interesting, and I've learned more about it this year than I ever thought I would know. Um, but it, it's basically, it's a, it's a commodities market. So things change rapidly. Prices go up, demand goes up, demand goes down. And that's why I think we've been struggling over the years with, you know, now we can recycle this. You know, now we have to, you know, we have to really rinse out that peanut butter jar. And then, then they, next year they say, well, you don't have to rinse it out as much as you, as you did before. So it's sort of confusing, but it, it sort of tracks back to this, this commodities market. And I think in the meantime, at least what I've been telling people, is to um, sort of think a little bit more upstream while we figure this all out. Like, like you were saying, maybe this China problem has inspired us to, or will inspire some to really create new solutions here. You know, sort of think upstream. Think about things like the ACT label, you know, where you can reduce the waste and everything on the, on the vendor side before it even gets to you. Are there programs in place for sharing cold storage reagents, chemicals, or uh, laboratory equipment? With regard to recycling chemicals or, or reusing chemicals within an institution, UC San Diego has done a phenomenal job with a program called ChemCycle. I would suggest you check that out. Uh, they've, they've integrated their chemical inventory, their surplus chemical inventory, into their procurement system so that when people go to buy something new, the first thing they see are the reagents and chemicals that are available locally. So I highly encourage that you to check that out because I think it's excellent. Um, with regard to equipment that might be difficult to redistribute, and I don't know if Seeding Labs will take this, but there's a company, a nonprofit called Seeding Labs. Are you familiar with them? They're a, they take equipment and redistribute it to labs in developing countries that can use the equipment, and they're based here um, in, or somewhere really close to here. So they're a phenomenal organization, and they might be willing to take some of these pieces of equipment that's harder to redistribute on your own campus or at your own facility. Lastly, I wanted to discuss the Better Grant program, which encourages institutions to increase the efficiency of their projects in order to reduce environmental impacts of NIH-supported research. Could you comment on topics from today that could be included as actions in grant applications, which would help them differentiate these projects from others? Yeah, I I think um, this is actually a... a, a program that's been developed out of a, a friend of Allison and, and mine um, out of CU Boulder, uh, Dr. Kathy uh, Ramirez Aguilar. She, she has uh, been fighting uh, a tremendous battle to sort of green grants, green the federal grant process, and they've developed what they call this Better Grants program, where they're trying to sort of put more wording and more emphasis on how you're making you know, decisions in the labs about what you're purchasing um, and how you're using the resources um, that are being provided to you. Now, I know that there is some language in the NIH grant process saying, like you said, you know, utilizing taxpayers' dollars um, uh, wisely. But from what I understand, it's currently at, at the state where they're, you know, if you have a, two grants, they're not going to necessarily pick, you know, to fund one grant over the other necessarily because this grant is green, this grant isn't. It's all based on the science. Um, but I think I think there can be some things you can put into your grants um, that that can improve, um, you know, your potential of, of 
uh, of getting funding. Um, one idea is um, through using shared equipment, which is something that um, is really an emphasis on the Better Grants website. Um, if you're you know, going for grant renewal and you have identified a new uh, pathway for your research and you need a new machine or a new instrument, you could say, well, in your grant, I've discovered that our campus has another group or a core facility that has a lot of the resources I need to, um, to get a lot of this done so we won't necessarily need to purchase um, this equipment on our own. So I think really that is one of the top things that, that people could do as far as you know, utilizing um, sustainability in, their, in getting their grant funding. But. Yeah, everything Quentin said is spot on. That's exactly where I think the grants are at this point, is shared equipment is the only thing that people are paying attention to. And actually, I think it's a requirement of most NIH-funded grants, equipment grants, that you have a, a sharing component after some number of years. Otherwise, you have to give it back. There's something like that, right? I don't remember what it's called. In any case, there's some requirement to do that. One thing that we've been working on in collaboration with the Better Grants effort is to, there are two pathways that we've been taking. So one is we've developed a certification program, which we didn't talk about um, yet, but I'm going to bring it up. So we have a Green Lab certification program that's nationally recognized. We encourage labs that have been certified to our standard to put that into their grant applications. Again, as Quentin said, it's not going to make the difference at the moment between getting in the grant or not, but we've been working and advocating pretty strongly for the NIH to recognize our standard, which they actually have on the grant side of things. We've also been in communication with National Science Foundation, and they also have said, and actually I think this will be a lot easier, that they will be willing to recognize the certification as well. So. We're hopeful that this is something that would, will make a difference. And I think, as with the styrofoam and any of the things that we're talking about, the more people that write into that box, the more it starts to raise awareness of what you're doing. So whether it's that you're certified or that you have a, a reuse, uh, that you're sharing equipment, or whether it's that you've implemented a recycling program or you've participated in the freezer challenge, I would encourage you to write whatever into that box because the more people that put things in that box, the more people have to pay attention to that it exists and that people are doing things. So even if it might not make a difference right now, put in whatever it is that you're doing. And I think everything that people have been sharing today has been fantastic ideas. So whatever it is, Put it in the box, because I think in the next five years, I really think we're going to see this be part of the grant process. Certainly with NSF, they're going to move a lot faster than NIH, but NIH has indicated that with the, with the potential administration change, there might be some appetite for them to actually do something around greening grants that's a bit stronger. Thanks so much to all our panelists for being here to answer your questions. I hope that you've learned something about the state of sustainability in life science research today and that you're inspired to learn more. As always, the transcript of this podcast contains lots of helpful links to further resources, so it's a great place to continue educating yourself about how best to improve green practices in your own lab. I hope that you'll join us for the next episode when we'll be focusing on your career. Whether that be landing your first job out of graduate school, moving on to a new institution or company, or taking your career in a completely new direction. We'll talk about how to get your LinkedIn profile to reflect you and your experience, as well as how to shine in the interview process. So be sure to tune in and put your best foot forward on the path to advance your career.